When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Big day, big day, big week, my friend. Day two of the NHL draft harm. Vancouver follows up, picking Tom Willander in the first round with uh, six more picks today. We'll go through all the picks in a minute, uh, but, you know, a real theme as we expected. This team had organizational needs on defense. They had organizational needs down the middle, and they have filled those. Their first three picks were defensemen, four defensemen picked in all, including the number 11 overall pick in Tom Willander. Then they picked two centers uh, and uh, a winger as well. We will we'll go through the picks right here. Uh, Tom Willander, 11th overall. We knew that yesterday. Uh, they also added a defenseman, Hunter Bruskevich, with the 75th overall pick, their first pick in the third round. Their second pick in the third round, Sawyer uh, Mino, 89th overall. And then uh, uh, round four, Ty Mueller. Uh, they finally get back up front, 105th overall in round four. Uh, also, Vilmer uh, Alrickson, uh, 107th overall, also in round four. And then Matthew Perkins uh, in round four. And a defenseman, Aiden Celebrini, local guy. His father, Rick Celebrini, spent a lot of time here, now working for the Golden State Warriors. Uh, very much an expert in the field of, uh, you know, in physiotherapy and in just uh, sports uh, performance and in that area. So they get him a defenseman again with their final pick uh, in round six. So overall, before we get into the players, just your thoughts on just how defensive heavy they went in this draft, especially with their top three picks. Yeah, I wasn't sure how much of a theme it was going to necessarily be in their overall draft approach, but certainly I remember when um, the draft lottery results came out, we knew that the Canucks were picking at 11. When you sort of spoke to a couple scouts and teams around the league, they felt that at least at number 11, that, that the Canucks would have strongly preferred to take a defenseman if possible. Now, of course, Patrick Alvin has refuted that publicly in terms of saying that their approach was always best player available. But look, teams always say best player available. Um, they're never going to say we're drafting for a position. And clearly, I think whether it was going to be a defenseman or a centerman, I think we all felt that's the direction they were going to go in um, at number 11. And certainly that theme sort of followed through later on. I mean, the, the good thing with uh, Bruce Debich, and I'm sure we'll dive into the indiv- individual picks more, uh, but at that slot with their first third round pick, I actually thought that even just on best player available, I thought he was a fantastic value add. And I thought the positional side of it was just a bonus. So I actually really love that pick. After Willander and Brustevich, I wasn't really a fan of the Canucks' work um, in the mid to late rounds. Now, the thing to obviously keep in mind is when you get to the late stages of the third round and, and beyond, look, even if on paper a guy looks like a good draft pick, the odds of that player making the NHL and becoming an impact player are astronomical. So 
overwhelmingly, when you look at a team's draft hall, you should be focusing on their first couple of um, picks anyway, which is where I thought the Canucks did more, um, you know, made more reasonable picks. But I think in the later rounds, you saw them go after a lot of project type guys who didn't have strong statistical profiles. Um, and so it's going to be fascinating to see how that, uh, how all of that shakes uh, out moving forward. Getting a question from, uh, from our listeners, uh, one suggesting you're surprised they made all of those fourth round picks. So was there a case to be made or even value there in terms of moving, you know, they had five mid round picks, two in the third, three in the fourth. Was there much value if they wanted to move those picks? Is that, was that even a, a possibility at this stage? Yeah. I mean, I would have liked That's- to see it. It's, I would have liked to see it a way to get back to get back into the second round, especially considering the like besides Brustevich, the players that they drafted with those um, with those sort of fourth round picks um, and the other third were guys that oh, you know many many people thought were a little bit of a reach in that sort of range and uh, the types of players that may not have even been on other teams' boards. Right. So I would have liked to see it again. I, I'm not privy to what opportunities were or weren't there in terms of how many teams in the second round were actually looking to net more picks and, and move down. But uh, some teams like that approach. It sort of differs. Right. Some teams prefer the quality. Others prefer the quantity when it when you get past uh, the first round. So I would have liked to see it. But, um, you know, we'll um, we'll just have to live with uh, with what the Canucks did there. So let's talk about Willander. And there were some people, including Craig Button, my colleague at TSN, that had him uh, in the top 10. But the majority probably had him later in the teens. I know there was some discussion about the Canucks potentially moving back. There were some shots of, of uh, you know, Patrick Alvin talking with Pittsburgh. And, you know, there was some movement with some teams that wanted to move up or move back in. But the Canucks seemed to zero in on this player and didn't necessarily want to take the chance at potentially losing him. Did the Canucks reach with Wallander at 11? Yeah, so two things are true here, right? First, he's a really good, exciting prospect. Zero doubt about it. I like a lot of qualities in his game. And even his character and his work ethic are outstanding. Those are elements that should allow him to maximize his ability to reach the peak of his potential. Now, at the same time, it's also true that they left higher upside talent on the board in terms of, let's say, a Zach Benson. Uh, Will Ander, would he have been my first choice at 11? Probably not, but it's still a reasonable pick. Um, when you look at, I mean, for starters, let, let's talk about the the idea of, of the upside and, and why there there may have been a case that there were higher upside picks there. For, for starters... Look, if a guy's playing junior level hockey, you want them to be dominating, right? Uh, making the NHL itself is extremely hard. Then you go on to, okay, playing 200 plus games is, is the next sort of barrier or threshold that people look at. That's that's exceptionally difficult. Now, if you're drafting a player um, at 11, you're asking him to be a high-end top four defenseman. That type of player is so, so rare in the hockey world um, overall the odds of developing into that uh, type of talent now and, and to become that type of rare player, you want that guy to, as a prospect, be head and shoulders above his peers. If he's playing in a junior sort of league as uh, Willander was in the J 20. And of course that's where, when you look at um, his, his performance, he was really good in Sweden over there, but you're talking about a guy whose statistical profile, 25 points in 39 games um, is pretty common and doesn't always translate into a high-end distinguished NHL talent. So that's where you sort of 
have the concern about, you know, uh, upside maybe a little bit. But in having said that, you watch him play and he's an excellent four-way skater. He's a smart player, um, above average size. And you can certainly make the case that if this guy hits his ceiling, it's a type of top four right shot D that if you don't draft these guys, it's nearly impossible to affordably get them via trade or free agency as the Canucks have found out uh, for a long time. And for this organization, it's the first time in five years that they've selected uh, defensemen in the first two rounds. So uh, you can understand both sides of the, both sides of the coin. So that's kind of the way that I'd sort of look at it is it's a reasonable pick. Um, it may not have been the best player available, but best player available in terms of highest upside. Yeah, and just listening to to Alvin talk about it, like you get the sense that he's trying to convince himself it was the best player available. And if it was a reach, it wasn't a big reach, right? We're talking about a reach of yeah. maybe three or four picks. Uh, and and I, I think it was the right thing for them to do. I really do. And I know that Benson is enticing, but we know where this organization is with wingers. I think this was the right thing. And just for the last thing that you said, if you don't draft and develop these guys, there's a cost to getting these guys. And it's not a small cost. Look at what the Canucks played for, uh, paid for Philip Ronick. Right. And, you know, he, he's not a number one defenseman like Ronick isn't. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that Willander's going to be. But look at what they had to pay to get Philip Ronick in the building. So and, and they knew at the time he was banged up and they still went out and did it right. Just from a big picture perspective. So I do think this is the right thing for the Canucks to do. Um, I, I think in terms of timeline, um, is it too much to suggest that he could be in Vancouver in two seasons. Maybe that'd be a little bit ambitious. I'm expecting him to, you know, I mean, I don't know what the Canucks are thinking, but just looking at the player that he is talking to other people, looks like a guy that probably spends two years in college and then turns pro. And then we'll see if that's, you know, starting in the AHL or in the NHL. The one thing I'd be mindful of is I'd want to take a patient approach just, just so you can maximize the growth of his offensive game. Because to me, that's the biggest wild card in terms of like what type of ceiling he hits. And that's a part of his game when you look at the offense where it's not there right now, but others look at that skill set and wonder like, okay, is there untapped room for growth there? And that's where, of course, going to Boston University in the NCAA this fall, we're going to get a really good indication of that because – you know, stylistically, the difference between, let's say, like looking at a skill set, skate, skates well, defends well, has above average size, he's going to be above average defensively in, at the NHL level. Um, I don't doubt that at all. Offensively, that's going to determine whether he's more of, let's say, a high end, you know, number three defenseman or maybe even a number two type defenseman with, you know, legit top pair upside or whether he's maybe, let's say, more of uh, a number four type uh um, you know, in that, in, in the offense, it's not just about the, the the scoring points. It's about driving play, and you, you sometimes have defensemen around the league who are good defensively, but their ceiling maybe is limited because they're below average at um, at just driving five and five offensive results. Uh, right? Like you think about a player like Brandon Carlo, right? Has the size, skates really well, and defends well. Um, good player. He's a number four defenseman, but limited offensively so he's not quite a number two three defensive so that's going to be the interesting thing to track with Willander's game and because I want him to grow in that in that department and reach that offensive peak so that when he's you know 23 24 25 years old he's the best player possible 
I, I, I wouldn't, I would, I would be patient in wanting him to, um, at the college level, dominate, spend a lot of time quarterbacking a power play, uh, learning to play in prime offensive positions. And even if he, even when he does turn pro, if it means, you know, um, you know, having to spend a year in the American league and, um, and really becoming the man on the blue line, um, then, then so be it because, um, for Willander, it, it really is about ensuring that he's the best player possible in the long run, not necessarily worried about, can we develop him as quickly as possible to become, you know, let's say Quinn Hughes' partner um, as, as quickly as we can. Yeah, I think from my standpoint, when I said two years, I was talking about the end of his second collegiate season, right? Not the start. Right, so yeah. Do two full collegiate seasons, and then at the end of it, they sign him and try to burn the first year on his ELC at that point. And quite frankly... Yeah. I love the fact that he's going to BU, and I love this reasoning for wanting to go to BU because he says that I want to develop my offensive game. And so we understand that he's got the tools to be a good offensive player, but he hasn't necessarily been a dominant one yet. Um, he has at some of the lower levels, but generally he's known for his defensive play, his defensive IQ, his skating, his overall awareness. And, you know, there's a, there's a bite to his game, which is something that the Canucks are going to need in their organization on the back end, especially if you're going to wind up playing with Quinn Hughes long-term. So the fact that he's going to play in the NCAA rather than playing in Sweden, you know, and it, it makes sense to me because you go to Sweden, you play in the SHL. Yes, you're playing against men, but you don't know how much you're going to get to play. And you don't know what role you're going to be in because their job is not to develop you for the NHL. Their job is to win hockey games. So you wind up playing 11, 12 minutes a night. You don't get those power play minutes. That doesn't necessarily help you as much as maybe playing in a development-based environment in the NCAA where you're not playing games and traveling all week. You're playing games on weekends. You're in the weight room during the week. You're practicing during the week. You're working on your skills. You're developing your game and you're learning. I think, I think it's an absolutely great decision for the Canucks. Now, however, Within all of that, you don't want to wait that long because now all of a sudden you get into year three and year four, and then you start getting into that question of will he or won't he? And and certainly, you know, they're not there yet, but I, I also think there's that fine line you've got to weave before you get into that, right? So for me, I think end of the second season is probably the right timing for him. But again, you know, we haven't even seen him at a prospect camp yet, so we'll look forward to that opportunity uh, when they get there. But um, uh, as we went through it, so you weren't necessarily – as bullish on their their first pick or their collection of picks today. So let's start with the third round and the two defensemen that they wind up picking in that round. You've got Bruskevich uh, and you've also got uh, Minio, uh, who just played with the Seattle Thunderbirds in the Western League this year. Um, yes, yeah, sorry. Before we move on to those other two defensemen, I just wanted to note um, with uh, Will Ander, one other thing that you mentioned in terms of um, the bite and the meanness and the nastiness. Like if he can especially add that element to, the, to this Canucks blue line, um, you know, that, that would be, you know, an amazing sort of bonus. So uh, I, I like that element. That's, uh, that's something that I've forgotten to mention. So uh, thanks for bringing that up um, with, um, with the two defensemen. So almost, almost uh, to, you know, polar opposites in terms of how, how I view, view them. Uh, Bruce Devich, I love that pick. Honestly, the public industry had him rated um, mostly as a second round talent. Uh, you look at Scott Wheeler, his, his work is excellent over at the athletic athletic, of course, and he had him ranked 40th on his board. So regardless of position, this was already a great value pick. And then on top of that, you do add the fact that he's a right shot defenseman. Um, you know, to me, that's uh that's a, you know, a home run sort of selection there. Um, it's interesting, right? You look at him and originally he was going to play for the University of Michigan, but he de de committed 
presumably because he felt that there wouldn't be enough opportunity there. And so he, he instead went to Kitchener in the OHL. Um, a jack-of-all-trades type of player, right? Slick skater, good pucks, puck skills, more offensively oriented, uh, but he can also defend the rush decently well. And you look at his statistical profile, it's always a, you know, a telling sign of, of what, you know, the probability is of turning into an NHL player. And, and he put up 57 points in 68 games in the, in the OHL. That's really solid production. Um, so his analytics there, um, draft wise, and in terms of his odds of becoming an NHL player are, are, are really promising. And you got to remember, it's not easy putting up points, um, you know, when you're talking about, let's say a third round talent uh, as a defenseman, right? You think back to, for example, Ole Levy was a consensus top 10 talent in uh, in the 2016 draft. Even if the Canucks didn't take him, he was going going top 10. And in the and in the OHL that year, he only had 42 points in 57 games. So, um, you know, with Bustevich, I think his his profile in that sense is is really promising. He may he in terms of his stylistic game and and the scouting report on him, um, the sort of yellow flag or, or the reason why he maybe wasn't drafted higher than than where he initially was is because he lacks, I think, a standout trait. And um, if you're six feet. I think scouts and teams desire a standout trait um, to convince them that you're going to be an impact player at, at the NHL level one day. But overall, I, I love that pick. A uh, big fan of it. Um, Minio, not as, as much of a fan, honestly. Um, six foot one defenseman played for the Seattle Thunderbirds who were excellent last uh, season. He could skate decently and he's a smart player, but um, you know, in, in speaking to, Scouts and people watching play does struggle to handle handle the puck and was mostly an invisible player in the WHL. And you get back to the same point of, hey, if you're a junior level player, you generally want to stand out uh, amongst your peers if you're one day going to be um, one of the rare prospects that uh, that becomes an NHL player. So sort of diverging opinions for me on, on those two. But again, I, I really like uh, Rustavich. So let's get into the fourth round. You've got Mueller, 20-year-old, uh, just finished with the, the Omaha Mavericks at uh, University of Nebraska, Omaha. Um, and, uh, you know, put up some points. But, I mean, you know, we're, we're getting deeper into the draft here. And then Ulrichsen, uh, who's 18, he spent the last couple of seasons with Jurgardens uh, over in Sweden. So of the players that we see from round four and beyond, I mean, you talk about the astronomical odds these guys face to get to the next level. How many of these guys are even going to be long-term pieces in the Canucks organization? Is there a dark horse here that you think was a great value pick that just might sneak through and be that guy? I mean, not immediately apparent, right? Um, yeah. Beyond, again, beyond Brustevich, I didn't love who they drafted. I, I think it was, it was a lot of guys that in the public sphere didn't really land on many teams or many um, publications as boards. And you even talk to um, scouts and teams. And I imagine for a lot of these um, prospects that they weren't on the radar of, of other teams as well. So there, there isn't necessarily one that stands out. I mean, um, again, you're talking about guys who aren't on, weren't on the radar yet because like they just weren't, impact players at their respective um, levels. 
Um, a couple of them, obviously, overagers, right? Mueller is a double overager. Um, you know, Matthew Perkins, for example, he's a sub point per game player in the USHL. Um, and he was a re-entry player, right? So like that type of player just isn't going to draw attention. So if you're drafting those types of guys, you better be seeing something in their tools or, or in their makeup that, uh, leads you, leads you to believe that there's untapped upside that others aren't seeing right now. Um, the one that, the one that does make me curious is maybe Ulrichson because he plays for the same organization as Jonathan LeCaramacchi. So the Canucks would have kept tabs. Of course, LeCaramacchi was playing in the all skin, whereas Ulrichson was playing in the J20. So they weren't necessarily playing together a ton, but the Canucks would have had eyes on the organization as a whole. And I imagine if as a result of that, they feel that they have a better grasp on this player than other teams and the rest of the public industry maybe did. And you look at uh, Ulrichson, right? Six foot six winger. Um, it was only half half point per game in the J20, but maybe you believe in him as a late um, later round or, or sorry, late bloomer. So, you know, that could be interesting. And, um, you know, Mueller is like, I don't hate that pick because he has at least been somewhat productive in the NCAA um, is a jack of all trades type of forward. But again, there wasn't, there wasn't anybody really from the fourth run onward that popped to me um, in terms of a great value pick. But again, I go back to what I said at the start at the end of the, at the end of the day, like I don't like it process wise necessarily, but the success of this draft class is going to be overwhelmingly reliant on those first two picks and those first two picks are pretty solid. So I'm not going to sit here and, you know, rip the Canucks for taking guys that, um, you know, they'll have watched a lot more than than everybody else, right? So, Yeah, absolutely fair. Uh, we do want to get uh, our VIPs in on this edition of the live room. So please feel free to enter our stage queue. Now, like the, the last time Drancer did this, he had all sorts of problems getting people in and out of the stage queue. So I will try and hopefully I do a better job of it. We also do want to transition into some free agent conversation as well, because uh, that's just around the corner. We're not going to get a chance to do this again before Saturday. Uh, the Canucks, uh, their names have been mentioned in conjunction with a lot of players, uh, Ian Cole, Carson Soucy, uh, even Luke Shen more, although the, the Leafs and Shen's camp are still getting into some pretty heavy conversations over the couple of next couple of days here before we get to Saturday. So I do want to give, um, I do want to give that conversation uh, a little bit of mileage as well. So we'll get into that. And again, we do invite you to get on the stage and, uh, and we'd like to get your questions here as well, because you got the boy genius. You don't want to pass that up. Um, so let's start with free agency and what the Canucks should expect, because, you know, we talked about the possibility of a trade uh, on the draft floor yesterday with Pittsburgh, maybe moving back from number 11, Patrick Alvin talked in his pre-availability. You were there the day before the draft, and it, it seemed like everything was kind of gearing towards free agency. That there didn't appear to be a lot of trade action on the table. And then the other thing I want to get into is this Tyler Myers news and this report out there from Frank Saravalli that the Canucks have had a trade on the table for some time. He believes it's with San Jose, a team that does have cap space. Um, there are some that are suggesting that maybe that $5 million bonus is holding this up for a period of time. Uh, so let's, um, why don't we do that? Why don't we start there with Tyler Myers and that report? Because that name is going to get the VIP's uh, interest for sure. Um, how how much do you think is there in terms of legs here? 
Yeah, I mean, I I don't have an inside sense of, of what's necessarily going on there in terms of the overall report and the possibility of it and and what my thoughts are. I, I think initially the biggest thing I'm wondering is, okay, just I'd be worried in terms of what the potential cost could be. Uh, because look, don't get me wrong. I, I We all know that Myers wasn't worth anywhere close to a $60 million cap it. And so if you're able to get off that contract, that opens up meaningful um amount of, of flexibility to upgrade the back end up upgrade at third line center so that uh that would also like as it stands right now with the connects cap situation they don't really have the flexibility to make a, a big splash right and that's fine but you're more looking at second tier sort of options and if you're able to clear a contract like myers then maybe you are in a position to go out to go after at least one difference maker so you can understand why they're looking at exit options I just worry about, okay, what's it going to cost, especially for only one year of, of cap right. relief, right? Because yep. you, you look at Josh Bailey, right? Um, one year left, $5 million, It cost uh, the Islanders a second-round pick to get off of that. Uh, do Would that type of equivalent be sort of worth it for the Canucks? And, and I mean, honestly, if it's – like what I, what, what, what I wonder is because the Canucks have sort of already been in a position where they don't have their second-round pick for next year – would it be a prospect that they that they'd be sending out instead? Um, you know, would they be considering? You know, um, and this is just literally me thinking out loud. It's definitely not me reporting anything. But would it be sort of? Would they look at their winger situation and look at let's say a Nils Hoglander and go, it, you know, is it worth throwing you know some type of winger prospect in? Or, or I don't know. I, I just worry about the cost. Is is my main main concern, especially because. What are you going to do after you open up the cap space? I'm still not confident in terms of the options that are out there, right? Because I look at David Camp, right? And we were talking about him initially in terms of, look, if he was a player on the open market that would have been available maybe around like 2 million times three years, I would have been like, okay, like that's, you know, a reasonable bet as a third line center. But 2.5 times four years, like I don't like that contract at all for what Toronto resigned him at. And so that just makes me worry about what this free agent class is going to look like. And if you have money, it's and and Alvino thankfully sort of alluded to this that they don't just want to spend money for the sake of it; they want it to be used wisely. But that's going to be really challenging in this free agent market, and and that's where the trade market may be more appealing in terms of trying to find the types of opportunities that, let's say, um, Pittsburgh did with Riley Smith. Uh, picking up a guy that is, you know, on a good contract. But again, that's more of a winger that they sort of, um, you know, exploited. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm not convinced that, um, that I, I, I'm leery. We'll, we'll see what, what happens if this continues having legs and, and what, what the cost would be. But um, I'm not certain yet of, of, of how I feel about all this. Yeah, I tend to agree, and and I, I was encouraged by what uh, by what uh, Patrick Alvine had to say that um, he he's going to spend his dollars wisely. He doesn't want to overpay, you know, because for the Canucks with the cap space they have now, you're talking about two second tier pro- players, right? You're not talking about a big splash. You're not talking about being able to fill all three spots that you need with reasonable NHL players. And quite frankly, from from the standpoint of Tyler Myers. What would what is Tyler Myers worth to you on a cap hit? That's tough um, because last season he two was two and a half million, three million. 
Not even that. Like maybe, t- I mean, maybe two and a half. Okay. Maybe. So, you know, so, so what are they going to bring in, right? Are they going to bring in a $3 million player that really is a bottom, uh, a bottom pair guy that you're going to wind up elevating, right? And, and I bring that up just because it's only one year. We're not talking about Oliver Ekman Larson. It's only one year of Myers. So you don't want to be giving up too much in the way of sweeteners. You don't want to be taking on an, another contract for a year that you could potentially buy out. Like, I'm not sure that that necessarily makes a ton of sense for what they're looking at doing, right? So, and, and you're not going to get a hockey deal in this, in this way, right? But you, you know, I know that the talk around Garland and Besser is that the Canucks want hockey deals, that there could be deals available for them to just get off those contracts, but they're still looking to get value back and which I'm, I'm still having a difficult time digesting. But in the case of Myers, it's not going to turn out that way. So I'm, I'm just so curious as to what, if there is a trade on the table, what, is coming back in that trade because again, it is one year of pain and this organization should still have sticker shock, even though it's different leadership. When you talk about the contracts, the Canucks moved with, you know, with Erickson and Beagle and Roussel with one year left to go through the Louis Erickson or sorry, to go through the OEL exercise. Uh, I just don't want to see them make that same mistake again. Yeah. If you're paying to get off of Myers's contract, you better before you make that that initial cap dump trade already know what your what your next move is and and exactly how you're going to use that cap space and that and that needs to be a possibility that you're really confident about sort of like and this is different because it was more of a, of a of a of a setup move in terms of acquiring the, the requisite uh, sort of assets but also clearing a little bit of cap room but you look at what Colorado did in um in shipping out Alex Newhook, and of course totally different sort of circumstances of how they did it because Newhook's a really talented young player, but Colorado I'm sure looked at how thin their prospect pipeline is, and you know they want to make upgrades and and presumably wanted to go after a player like Ross Colton, but they probably looked at at their long term cap situation, the fact that Newhook is an RFA that needs a new deal, and their sort of limited ammo assets wise. And went, okay, we, we'd love to go after Colton, but we need to free up a little bit more cap room. And more importantly, we need more trade assets to do, to do that. So it's like the new hook trade was made to set up, to immediately then set up the Colton move. And you can clearly connect it, connect one with the other. Um, so if the Canucks are going to pay a price to get off Myers, I hope that, that, you know, there's immediately, uh, um, uh, an- another sh- sort of shoe to drop, and it isn't a case of okay, we're paying to get off this deal now. Let's think about possibilities, and because then you run the risk of being overpriced on, you know, um, and 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 outbidded on on guys that you may have uh, have seen as reasonable targets. All right, uh, let's talk about some of the other players that the Canucks have been tied to: um, Carson Soucy and Ian Cole. Uh, another big body defenseman in Susie who looks like he's going to be available and Seattle's not going to bring him back. And they've certainly got some depth on the back end there. What would he bring to the Canucks? What are the, what are the numbers under the hood? Tell us about a guy like Carson Susie and what does that contract come in at? Yeah. So Susie's interesting because he's a player that even going back to when he was in Minnesota has typically sort of dominated in a third pair type role. And he offers a lot of the stylistic elements that the Canucks need on the back end, right? Of course, six foot five, adds that size, adds some bite, adds some penalty killing ability. Those are qualities, especially in a stay-at-home defensive package, 
that the Canucks could use, especially since he can play both sides. So he has a level of versatility that's attractive. I guess the biggest question is just, can he translate those results in a top four role, right? Uh, in a, in a, in higher leverage minutes, less sheltered of a role that we don't know, right? Because he hasn't established himself. And, and when, you, when you look at his past season in Seattle, he really was strictly in a third pair um, sort of role playing with uh, predominantly with uh, Justin Schultz since the Alexiak Borgen pair was Seattle's second pair. And uh, Susie had a tough regular season, but played well in the playoffs. And, and again, I think that goes back to the, the type and style of defenseman he has and, and why that type of you know player can often be effective in, in the playoffs when there's less space, when there are more battles, when there's more of a premium on being able to keep guys to the outside and break up the cycle, clear guys around the crease, all of those uh, elements. So I, you know, that's, that's how I sort of read um, his, um, his skill set at. Um, and in terms of potential, potential cost, I think, um, you know, evolving hockey's contract projection, which has typically been, you know, pretty historically accurate um, has met 2.6 million times three years. So um, we'll see how the actual actual market looks for him. But that's, you know, typically, you know, the, the type of ballpark range you'd be talking about for Susie. And the ballpark range of the Canucks are looking at spending right now so that they can get multiple assets in the building. Um, what about Ian Cole? 34 years old, uh, you know, was was significant for the lease last year. Where do we see him? potentially landing and fitting in. Is he, is he a good fit here in Vancouver? Yeah. So Cole's really interesting because if you, if you could replicate what he did for Tampa last season in a top four role, he'd be the perfect sort of fit considering cost for Vancouver, because this is a player who when Ryan McDonough was sort of um, was traded to Nashville, the, the lightning all of a sudden had a hole in terms of, a veteran defenseman that could play tough minutes because Tampa did what Vancouver kind of does with Quinn Hughes, where Victor Hedman doesn't necessarily play the hardest minutes in the blue line. He matchups wise, he it's, it's not that he's sheltered, but they try and free him up a little bit more. And, and that's where McDonough was sort of matching up against other teams as top lines and, and all those sorts of things. So with Cole coming in, he, wasn't fully replacing all of you know what McDonough did, but the matchups that he was playing were legitimately above average. He was playing a legit top four role, uh, playing a ton of heavy PK minutes, and his play driving results were really, really promising. And this wasn't necessarily a case of you know Tampa was a possession dynamo team last year, where you where you look at the results and go, well, it was just a product of the environment. He legitimately sort of played well in that role, and he was effective as a as a number four um, at um, at both ends of the rink. And and again, you're talking about a guy that has size, has bite, um, can help shorthanded, can help um, in terms of breaking up the cycle, strong in zone defensively, um, savvy veteran presence. The the concern obviously is, and what will make or break how it, how you p- potentially feel about the contract is okay. Would it be two years or would it be three? Because at two years, you can live with it and you look at that and go, okay, that's a reasonable bet. If you look at three years, that's where you become worried because that third year when he's 37 years old, I have almost no faith that he's still going to be a, uh, still going to be a, a top four level defenseman. And at that point, if you're paying him, let's say three million, three and a half million, um, whatever his number ends up being, 
that third year could kill you. And that third year is obviously a, a season where the Canucks would be hoping to contend and, and be legitimately good. And you'd be were you know, potentially worried about that, uh, that deal. So really to me, the, the, the biggest um, wild card for, for how I'd feel about that potential potential deal is, okay, would it be two years or two or would it be three? Well, we were talking about Luke Shen and just the possibilities uh, for the Canucks there. And it looks like things worked out or sorry, not worked out, but the Leafs have a lot of interest in bringing him back. Uh, there's obviously interest on both sides there. Shen appreciated his homecoming back in Toronto. So now, if it doesn't work out for him in Toronto, what do you think of Luke Shen coming back to Vancouver and that possibility? Yeah, I mean, look, he was great for um, this blue line. And look, in an ideal role, uh, ideal situation, you probably have him as, as you know, sort of perfect third-pair defenseman. But he's shown during that sort of playoff run in Toronto that he could still hang in a top four capacity. He was phenomenal alongside Morgan Riley in um, in the playoffs, especially by far, you know, one of the Leafs' better defensemen in terms of holding up against um, in terms of um, Tampa Bay and, and even against Florida, he um, he still played solid hockey. So the, the thing with Shen is I think at this point, especially coming off of that strong, you know, playoffs, I think his camp is going to be looking for a number, you know, probably if I have to guess around two and a half million um, higher than that with some level of term on it. Right. And that's where you just yeah, have to be. At, you're looking at a two year deal at minimum and you're looking at trade protection which he's talked about as well. So that's obviously going to complicate things. Absolutely. And again, in a weak for agent class, could, could that number like, could two years even become three? Like, I I don't know. Right. That's where, again, it just, it it sounds boring to say, but it's hard to really read how great of a fit it is until we find, you know, find out the cost, because let's say, let's say you could do 2 million times two years. Well, I, I love that. Right. Like at that point you're, you're like, great, let's, let's bring it back as a stop, a stop gap option. But if you're all, all of a sudden you're talking about like 2.5 times three or 2.75 times three, then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, there's, there's some definite risk on that, um, on that contract. Yeah, I know. There's no doubt. Um, up front, who do you think the Canucks circle, towards now i mean you've seen the moves that have been made uh you know they've been talking about barbershev previously and and obviously that hasn't gotten done as he's extended with vegas um who do you think the realistic targets are for that third line center spot going into free agency yeah this is where the Canucks could, could you know run into some trouble right because there just aren't many high-end centers left on the market uh jt Compers, i think out of vancouver's um range and and even if he was he'll probably get um get overpaid camp got overpaid by Toronto. And after that, absolutely. The, the, the pickings are slim, right? You're talking about yeah. Nick Bukestad, who you like, but again, I mean, coming off the season that he had and, and the fact that he's typically been an injury prone sort of inconsistent player year after year. I don't necessarily love that. Uh, pie suitor is a name that, um, you know, Drance and I have um, spoken at length about like him as a, like him as a top nine centerman for sure. But He's probably the best, you know, possible target in terms of the free agent market right now. But again, after what Camp got, like, you know, he may get higher than what his, you know, initial projection was, right? Like his initial his initial contract project projection according to Evolving Hockey was two point two times two. It's definitely going to exceed that. And all of a sudden, if you're then talking about a three and a half million dollar player with term, then it becomes a whole different. Um, 
you know, cal- uh, calculus. So like third line center is going to be, you know, challenging. I-, I wonder about Alex Kerfoot, right? Um, you know, he's coming off of a down season. Um, he's a bit of a tweener in terms of he can play both wing and center. He offers speed. He can score and, um, you know, kills penalties as well. So I wonder if he's a player that the Canucks would sort of target. Now, obviously, he's from Vancouver. So maybe from the player's perspective as well, he'd have some appeal. And he's coming off of, you know, a year ago, he had a, a phenomenal season, especially scoring at um, at five on five. And, you know, if he had hit the free agent market coming off of that type of year, he would have he would have you know, been a player that you look at and go, he's going to get overpaid. Yeah, like he had 51 points a year ago, but this year only had 32. So like, I actually don't mind Kerfoot depending on the cost. Um, if you're confident that he can stick at center. So he's, I guess, a, a name that you would um, keep an eye on. But yeah, like third line center is not going to be, you know, easy to, um, to fulfill here. Yeah, did, I'm interested to see if they can get it done within the first two days of free agency or if it becomes something they've got to, They've got to get back on the phones and work the trade angle to see if there's something there. But um, uh, for us, listen, we've been we've enjoyed doing this. We've been on for about 45 minutes here. Uh, at the end of day two, final day of the NHL draft this year, the Canucks defense heavy. Now, as far as our schedule the rest of the way here, uh, we are going to get something in and around free agency. So if the Canucks make a big move, we will react to that accordingly on Saturday. Uh, but I know you're going to be all over that. And uh, more likely, we will probably stick to our regular VanCast day of Monday uh, to do the next show and kind of break down a couple of days over free agency weekend. So uh, either of those two days. So just, um, you know, follow us on social media, follow us on Twitter, and we will keep you up to date. You know, we're running out of these for the next, uh, we'll go for a couple of weeks. But then after that, we may uh, take a bit of a hiatus until we get in and around some other Canuck-related events, either later on in the summer or heading into training camp. But uh, definitely, we will have at least one more VanCast uh, in and around free agency, probably on Monday, after the first two days have wrapped up, but possibly as early as Saturday, depending on how big the Canucks go on day one of free agency. But for us, hey, listen, we've enjoyed it. Uh, 2023 NHL draft in the books. Hey, how did Nashville go for you? Ton of fun. This is my first time here, and I'm not even the biggest... um, Yeah, I'm not even the biggest country music fan, but it's been... Been a, it's been an absolute blast. I love it. You know what? Like, here's the thing. I'm not a country music guy, but being in Nashville, you can't not get into it, even for the 48 hours that you're there. I mean, I've been to the Grand Ole Opry twice, and and I know nothing about country music, but uh, it's it's uh, it's certainly also. I, I forgot to mention this, but you'll not believe who I like. I, I didn't talk to him because he was with his family, but you, you will not believe who I ran into when i was boarding my connecting flight on the way to nashville tell me willie desjardin come on what's wearing that? wearing his medicine hat uh, hat hat tiger um, polo too i was like this is so on on point and even the flight over like i was sitting next to an assistant nhl coach like literally right to my left a whl scout to my right there was the aisle and then on the other side was shane doan as well so that entire flight was just taken over by people at the at the draft. And then, yeah, I mean, Nashville itself, like, you got to remember, man, like, I, I had to spend four days in Buffalo, um, around four days at the, at the Combine, just like two, three weeks before um, before this. So my, 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 the bar for what I was hoping for in terms of a fun city was, uh, was pretty low after, after Buffalo. 
Yeah, no doubt. Well, look, you, you more than made up for it in Nashville, so I'm I'm hoping you had a very good time. And uh, look, this was a lot of fun to do. We will talk again uh, either on Monday or Saturday. And for the VIP, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for logging on.